talk about introduction to care transitions and um, the way we're going to have this conversation is we're going to first actually watch a video that's uh, put out by the Center for uh, uh, the Center for Practice Interva uh, Innovations, and they come from New York City. And so I think it's important to recognize that um, that the context for the training that's being delivered is a little bit different than what we have here in Los Angeles. And I'm hoping that we can uh, talk about that after the video plays today. So I want you to think about some of the differences that you recognize or some of the suggestions or um, ideas that come up from the clip and how those may or may not work for our context here in Los Angeles County. Um, so my name is David Hainick. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I work with the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership and I'm a lead training, or, excuse me, lead implementation specialist uh, with PMHP. And um, I, just to give you a little bit of background on myself, uh, primarily because I think it might help um, you understand some of the perspectives that I have, but I uh, moved here to LA uh, a little over two years ago from New York City, in which I worked with the assertive community treatment teams um, in New York City. So uh, again, it, assertive community treatment teams are very similar to full service partnership teams. Um, same same type of work, same population, very similar team structure. Um, obviously, the context of New York and LA are, are very different. Um, but that's a little bit of my experience. And uh, near the end, when we have some discussion about the video, um, I'll probably reflect on some of those experiences. Again, recognizing that um, that you know New York is a very different place than LA, and resources look different, collaboration looks different, systems look different. So, um, I uh, yeah, I think it's important to to recognize that. Okay, so I just want to show you how to access these resources and also be able to access additional resources that are from CPI, and again, that's the Center for Practice Innovations, and they're out of New York City. So we have a contract uh, with them as PMHP to make these online modules available to everyone. So here is our website, and it's just pmhp.ucla.edu, and I'll have it up on the screen a little bit later. If you go to training at home and then select online training modules, this is going to take you where if you already have an account, you're able to log in. If you need an account, you would click here and then that'll direct you to a really quick survey and then you'll be able to uh, create an account and then access all of the trainings that are available on that um, I, on that website. And again, it's a CPI out of New York City. And they work really closely with the ACT teams there. So these trainings are very specific to that type of work, to outreach, to intensive case management, um, engagement, uh, working with people who have uh, uh, severe mental illness. So um, they're definitely uh, appropriate trainings. I, I think Again, the one difference is sometimes you may recognize like, okay, well, we don't have those same resources. So it's always good to keep that in mind. Okay, so now I'm gonna go to the video. Hi, I'm Lisa Dixon from the Center for Practice Innovations, Columbia University Medical Center and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. The title of this course is Introduction to Care Transitions, the Importance of Discharge Planning and Early Aftercare. I'm going to be joined by Emily Grossman later on in this lecture. 
So the objectives of this course are twofold. First, to understand the role of hospitalization and continuity of care post-hospital discharge. Second, to identify components of successful discharge planning and early aftercare in the engagement of recently hospitalized individuals. So we're talking about hospitalization and we really need to think about hospitalization. And hospitalization, kind of like diagnosis, has some good parts and some bad parts. It has some pluses and some perils. So let's start with the pluses. First, hospitals can provide a safe environment and treatment for acute symptoms and dangerousness. Hospitals can provide a platform and a location to assess problems, complications that might be amenable to intervention. Finally, hospitals and hospitalizations provide an opportunity to initiate a new intervention in a safe environment. And, and that's all very, very important. But on the other hand, what are the perils of hospitalization? Hospitalization can be traumatic, stigmatizing, and stressful for the individual. And by the way, they can also be stressful for the individual's family members. And, and really, most painfully, without adequate follow-up, hospitals may not reach their potential. Hospitalizations may not produce benefit or may not be ultimately therapeutic. And in order to do that, appropriate discharge planning is required, which takes effort. And finally, I think when we, when we reflect on the pluses and perils of hospitalization, I think we can all agree that minimizing hospital use is good for everyone. So, so here's the challenge. The challenge is that we want the hospitalization to avoid, to not lead to re-hospitalization or drop out from care. What we want is for the hospitalization to lead to engagement in outpatient care, follow-up, and wellness. So, so how are we doing? How are we doing with post-hospital follow-up? And we worry about follow-up and engagement because dropout leads to relapse. These are some data from Medicaid HMOs. And what we see here is the percentage of individuals who have been hospitalized who had a follow-up outpatient appointment within seven days. And then we see data that show the rates of follow-up outpatient treatment within 30 days. And this is from 2010 to 2013. And what you see is that about 40 to 50% of individuals make an appointment within seven days. And maybe 60 to 65, 70% make an appointment within a month. But what does that tell us? That tells us that 30 to 40% of people who have the most intensive care in a psychiatric hospital don't, have an don't make an appointment within a month of discharge. And that really is a problem. And that's something that we can work on and improve and fix. Okay, so, so what do we know? How can we understand why somebody 
who was ill enough to be in a psychiatric hospital, why they might not pursue follow-up care after they're discharged. So what do we know? We know from consumers that often people don't follow up because they want to be independent. They want autonomy. Maybe treatment is inconvenient. It's not accessible. They can't pay for it. Maybe they're dissatisfied with providers and treatment. People often feel that treatment doesn't help and it's not relevant to their lives. Remember about person-centered care. Sometimes people feel that they no longer need treatment. They're better now. And finally, as we've talked about numerous times in, these, in this course series, there is stigma associated with being in treatment and therefore many people don't pursue treatment. So those problems begin to give us targets. They, they begin to give us strategies for uh, enhancing aftercare. So what do we know about predictors of psychiatric rehospitalization and relapse? And these are some client characteristics that have been shown in the research to be associated with rehospitalization and relapse. And when, as, we, as we talk through these predictors, what we need to be thinking about is, okay, how can we address that? If this factor uh, increases the likelihood of relapse or dropout, how can we address it? So homelessness, that makes sense. Uh, people who are homeless may have more difficulty following up with care. Co-occurring substance use and medical disorders. Unemployment. Conflict in the family and the social system. Psychotic disorder diagnosis as opposed to other diagnoses. And also lower educational attainment. Now, obviously we can't address all of these, but we can address many of them. What are some predictors of psychiatric rehospitalization and relapse that occur within the treatment program? One is greater symptoms, including depression at discharge. So I'm thinking, hmm, if greater symptoms are associated with rehospitalization uh, re and relapse, maybe we need to uh, reduce uh, symptoms as much as possible at the time of discharge. Medication side effects at discharge, again, Hmm, maybe we need to try to minimize that. Not filling a prescription within one week post-discharge. Again, these are um, uh, uh, practices or, 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 or outcomes that can be fixed, that can be dealt with. And lack of family support, a family meeting in the hospital, or connection with the family is associated with rehospitalization and relapse. So if we kind of are beginning to get a feel for the nature of the problem, let's look at now what, can, what, what we've learned about the solution. What may reduce early readmissions? And the first thing I want to talk about, and I've already alluded to it, is optimizing treatment. Person-centered, culturally competent, and trauma-informed approach that promotes hope engagement and agency, and those are our recovery dimensions, um, can uh, reduce early readmission. Treatment relevance, this notion that the individual believes that the treatment that they're getting matters and is something, is addressing a problem that they own. Optimizing medications, addressing comorbidities, activating the support network, I can't underscore that enough. When an individual leaves the hospital, 
they go back to their families, to their friends, to the people that are in their lives. And if we can activate that support network to support the individual, we can reduce the likelihood of readmission. And then finally, communicating with the outpatient team to understand reasons for admission. And that may seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but it hardly ever happens. There's this sort of big chasm. There's like, you know, an ocean between the inpatient staff often and the outpatient staff. And if the individuals providing inpatient treatment don't understand you know, from the outpatient uh, provider's perspective why this hospitalization, our odds of really addressing that um, are, are much reduced. Okay, so what can reduce early readmissions pre-discharge components before discharge? Okay, and you're gonna, this is gonna be, these are gonna be things that seem so obvious, but they need to be done and they're often not done. Pre-discharge psychoeducation, learning about illness, diagnosis, symptoms. Individuals who, who have these disorders need to be experts, not only on their own experience of disorder, but whatever knowledge is out there about treatments, that's going to help that person. Pre-discharge needs assessment. What do they need? How can they prevent uh, relapse? Pre-discharge assessment of whether treatment plan is culturally congruent with individuals' and families' views. You know, it's gonna be a lost cause if we're providing treatment the inpatient setting that the individual and family think is irrelevant or not compatible with their uh, religious beliefs or their cultural mores. Pre-discharge medication, education, and reconciliation. Literally as simple as going over the medications and uh, reviewing the side effects, the indications, and possibly even, and, 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 and including medications that might be for non-psychiatric medical problems as well as psychiatric problems. And again, inclusion of family and social supports. That's gonna be this repetitive theme in the notion of reducing early readmission. And client activation, you might say, well, gosh, this person's leaving the hospital and they're, you know, maybe they're tired, maybe they're overwhelmed, maybe they've been through a lot, you know, how are they gonna be able to master all these things? And, and activation is really part of that, is, is empowering them and helping them to, to believe that they can master this. So that's part of what we mean by client activation. So in addition to these pre-discharge components, we have bridging components and post-discharge components. So again, you know, this is really gonna seem so obvious, but it's not often done. Rapid appointments. The sooner that you have an appointment, that an individual has an appointment, the more likely they are to connect and for it to stick. Appointment reminders, phone, mail, text. It's very, very helpful when there's a transition manager or a navigator or a peer or someone, some entity, whose job it is to help that person make the transition and to do that in a very individualized way. And finally, timely communication between inpatient and outpatient staff. I've had patients who've been hospitalized and I might not know that the individual's been discharged for a week or a month. That's something that's so easy to fix and we just need to make sure that it gets fixed. Other bridging and post-discharge components to reduce early readmissions. 
reducing barriers to obtaining medication. We saw that not filling a prescription within a week leads to relapse. So what can we do to reduce those barriers to obtaining medication? Post-discharge psychoeducation, post-discharge needs assessment, post-discharge cultural assessment, peer support and addressing comorbidities. So what we really need to do is we need to link the pre-discharge and the post-discharge care processes so that the individual experiences this transition as seamless. And there are some service interventions that can make this happen. And I've already alluded to some of them. And we're gonna talk about data sharing and case review. There's again, telephone case management. And a lot of this assistance can be provided over the telephone. Service navigators, again, individuals whose job it is, who have expertise in making that link. The critical time intervention is actually a brief, sometimes three, six, nine month intervention that really is focused on, on, on cementing that uh, transition from uh, inpatient to outpatient. And people, uh, critical time intervention and intensive case management, assertive community treatment, which is the last uh, item on the list, would be used with those people who've shown that they, they really struggle with uh, repeated hospitalization. And assertive community treatment is really a full tilt inter team-based intervention for people who, who really have a hard time uh, staying out of the hospital without an intensive team-based uh, program. I'm going to conclude by sharing a research project or a demonstration that actually a managed care company did in order uh, to try to reduce rehospitalization among its beneficiaries. They had three parts to their approach. The first was quarterly data sharing. So their behavioral health managers met with leaders of seven psychiatric hospitals. They reviewed admission data. They reviewed length of stay trends. So there was this kind of connectivity between the behavioral health managers and the leaders of the hospital. And they did case review. What does that mean? They focused on patients readmitted within 30 days of discharge. So they discussed factors that might have led to readmission, both kind of individually with particular patients and then also as they tried to kind of note trends or patterns. They looked at substance use, treatment non-adherence, premature discharge, and that kind of thing in this case review. And they tried to identify uh, systemic problems that were coming up repeatedly. And then finally, in this, uh, this company um, did quality improvement. So they developed joint strategies to improve identified care processes. So if they, they, they figured out there was a problem and they said, okay, how can we together fix this? So they did provider education about medication alternatives. And in particular, there was a focus on using um, uh, intramuscular medications uh, as opposed to oral medications. Um, outpatient providers visited inpatients on the day of discharge. Um, uh, case management was initiated during admission. And if someone was readmitted, they assigned the same physician uh, uh, to that patient uh, uh, that the patient had previously had so that there was continuity and learning. And, and, and did this work? Did this work? Actually, it did work. It worked. For this particular company, the annual rate of readmissions was about 18% before they undertook this course of action, and it declined to about 10, 11%. So that's a, that's a very significant 
decline in readmissions. Um, and some of the specific changes that resulted in uh, reduced readmission were patients switched uh, from oral to long-acting injectable medications, and that's typically for antipsychotics, um, and that produced um, about a 40% reduction in readmissions over 27 months. So it's really important to sort of think about, well, what specific clinical practices might reduce readmission? And patients, this I, I find remarkable, patients receiving day of discharge outpatient visits, um, that produced a 20% reduction in readmission over 17 months. So really something so simple, so simple, really, you know, it's a potential game changer. Let's finish up hearing from Emily Grossman, who's going to share her personal experience of hospitalization. Thanks so much for listening. This is Lisa Dixon. Hi, I'm Emily Grossman. Personally, I've never had a good hospitalization. They're all traumatic, a lot of upsetting things happen in the hospital, and losing one's freedom is never ideal. However, there were times along my journey when hospitalization was really the only option. So I've reflected upon what made it both less bad and also why this hospitalization was in fact my last. Here are some of the answers that I came up with. First of all, the team really made an effort to obtain my medical records, learn my history, and then the doctor took the time to read my medical records very carefully. The team also took the time to really get to know me as a person. They spoke with my support system, mostly my parents. And when the team met with me, they met with me as a whole team with both the psychiatrists and the social workers. When my case became difficult, the psychiatrist consulted with other psychiatrists. And finally, they really coordinated care as best as they could with an outpatient provider so that when I got out of the hospital, I had a place to go. While it wasn't perfect, I really felt like the team made a true effort to make sure that this was my last hospitalization. Okay, thank you for uh, uh, watching that video. And I, I hope there were some things there that stood out to you. You know, as I listen to that and I've watched that video a few times, I think the thing that first comes to me is, you know, easier said than done. <laughs> um, a lot of those were very idealistic and I get it. That's what they're, they're trying to uh, provide uh, information on, on what hopefully could happen. And I, I recognize also that they realize that not all of that stuff can necessarily happen as seamlessly as we would like. You know, something that stood out for me are the pluses and perils of hospitalization. And I just listed a couple. Um, she had presented a few different ones. Some of these overlap. 
Um, but I, I'm really curious to what you all think. So I'm going to read through what I put as pluses and perils, and then I'd really like to know what you all view are, are some of the positives and negatives of hospitalization. So, you know, for me, it provides an opportunity for the individual to gain insight into his or her illness. And so what I mean by that as a positive is there were some individuals that became hospitalized and we, that may be the only time in recent history that they've been on medications. And when on while on medications in the hospital, um, sometimes that would provide them the ability to reflect and have some insight into what they're experiencing and maybe make a decision when they're not experiencing psychosis or not experiencing it as intensely. Um, so we, we often found that that could potentially be a benefit of hospitalization. Didn't happen that way all the time, but sometimes it did. Um, it provided an opportunity for engagement. Um, here I put FSP teams or E6 or outreach teams. Um, you know, when we were doing this work in New York, we would oftentimes feel like, okay, they are hospitalized. If we found out that somebody was hospitalized, that was the opportunity to get the team in there, go to the hospital, meet with that individual, and try to engage them into treatment um, on an outpatient basis. So that way, all those connections can be made when they're ready for discharge. That can happen relatively seamlessly, knowing that there's a, a, a group, a team that is ready to provide support and care immediately upon discharge, and even a little bit prior to just, you know, again, establishing those relationships. Um, and then a potential gateway into appropriate treatment. Again, I think that having the having medication, maybe developing some insight, that may be an opportunity to link them with treatment that, that truly is appropriate. Now, some of the perils or the downsides of hospitalization is it's traumatic. And I can't overstate this enough. I'm sure you all know more than I do, having worked with many people who have been hospitalized, um, that that experience, it's something that's hard for me to wrap my head around of how scary that could be, how much fear may be induced, how, um, uh, how powerless the individual may feel. Um, and that kind of goes into that next point of it tempor temporarily removes freedom and autonomy. And coming from a, a trauma-informed care approach, we know freedom and autonomy, or we could e even talk about like a sense of safety and control over one's life. Like those are essential elements when working with someone who's experienced trauma. So right away, you know, the hospital is, is taking some of those things away, maybe not completely, but the perceived um, experience most likely is that they don't have freedom or autonomy in those moments. And then finally, it, it, and this came up during the video and as I was, as I was watching, um, the thoughts popped in my head again that it creates this negative perception of mental health care. Um, I think one of the questions that the presenter had posed is, you know, uh, or had mentioned about how, uh, how stigmatizing mental health care could be and how come people don't engage in outpatient services after being hospitalized. And for me, the answer was, well, one of the answers was pretty obvious and that they, if they just experienced a really traumatic event from mental health professionals, um, 
it makes perfect sense that they may not be wanting to engage with another mental health treatment group, even if it's outpatient, even if it may look different. Um, I imagine those connections are, are still going to remain um, present. So does anyone have any other ideas of what might be some positives or negatives about hospitalization? Thank you for sharing that. I, I was going to add that comment right at the end too, is like that perception that uh, it didn't do anything. I agree. Like oftentimes they are absolutely correct in that. Um, they were there 72 hours. It disrupted their lives. Uh, there, there's the opportunity sometimes, depending on what their housing status is, they, they may have lost their spot at an encampment. They might have lost their space at a shelter. They might have lost all of their possessions, um, depending on how that um, hospitalization took place. If it was through a 5150, like, you know, whatever the case might be, but there's a lot of risk in hospitalizing somebody. And, you know, the hope is that, you know, the seamless discharge planning will take place and they'll get connected to a team. But oftentimes we know that that just doesn't happen. Um, and of course, I, I say these things without, uh, you know, not saying that there's any malice or, or involved in the process. I mean, it's typically to really help somebody, um, but sometimes it just doesn't do the trick. It, it, it doesn't actually help in that moment. You know, the, the idea of a of premature, premature discharge, I, I think that's something that is fairly common. Um, certainly happened a lot in New York City. I know it happens a lot here in, uh, in Los Angeles County. And uh, again, those traumatic experiences just kind of sometimes just keep adding, um, keep adding up. Um, you know, something else, and I'm curious if this is an experience that you all have or have had in LA. Um, but if we, if it was a client that we are already working with and they are hospitalized and we find out they're hospitalized, we of course meet with them in the hospital are part of that discharge planning process. Um, but sometimes the hospital will let us know Friday afternoon, hey, we're gonna discharge this person. We're like, no, not on a Friday. Don't discharge somebody on a Friday um, because we know there's not as many supports available on the weekend. Like if anything, like is there the possibility of holding that individual at least until Monday? So that way there's, more available. There's more connections that can be made. Um, sometimes advocacy worked, sometimes it did not work. Um, and, you know, sometimes we just didn't know that a client was even hospitalized. Um, and I, I think this is probably a big difference between New York and LA. In, in New York, it, it didn't work perfectly. So I'm not saying like this is what LA should do. Um, but there was a, a single point of access system for all of our ACT teams. And hospital social workers, psychiatrists, all of the inpatient units and emergency rooms, it was pretty much well known that if somebody comes in with a psychiatric emergency or if they're uh, facing uh, in involuntary hospitalization, you know, you call that single point of access, which was operated by the, uh, by the city, excuse me, and you say, hey, we have this person, are they connected with an ACT team? And if so, that hospital can then call the ACT team and they usually did and would say, hey, we have a client of yours. Um, you know, he came into the ER, we decided to keep him here or her here. And um, we'd love for you to be part of this process so we could make that discharge even seem a, 
uh, more seamless. But again, that didn't always happen. Sometimes we wouldn't be able to find an individual. And so we would have to participate in something that we would call a diligent search. And basically that meant that we would be calling all of the hospitals after a certain period of time where we didn't see or hear from a specific client, we would start calling hospitals and saying, hi, do you have somebody by this name in your inpatient unit? Um, and oftentimes those are successful. We'd be able to locate the individual and then being able to go to the hospital um, and connect and be part of that planning process. But as you can imagine, that's a time consuming process. Um, it's a pretty aggravating process to have to call all over the place and LA County is huge. And, and so, you know, as you probably have experienced, people sometimes end up in places that we didn't quite expect. So, um, Again, it doesn't always work, but that it, it was uh, it was a beneficial system overall. Really great uh, comment, and I think one possible if we're able to talk with the people we work with about what to expect when being hospitalized, what that experience may be like, and how that individual can have more ownership over that experience, I think that would be amazing. Um, I know that's not always possible, particularly if we're not the ones who are part of that hospitalization, or you know, if it happens over the weekend and like they were picked up by, uh, by the police department and they're the ones who initiated a 5150. But, you know, and I have it on a slide here, um, here it is. Um, but the idea of creating a, and many of you already do this, have a um, a crisis plan in place, or I put a wrap plan, a wellness and recovery action plan um, that includes like what to expect if you do become hospitalized against your will and having that conversation. Um, in the video, they mentioned that uh, pre-hospitalization psychoeducation is really, really, well, actually they, they framed it as uh, pre-discharge. So the individual is already in the hospital, but hearing what you're saying, taking that a step further. Um, and maybe even, you know, if you're like with an, uh, well, with any team, actually, like if you're going to be working with somebody um, who you think might end up having to be hospitalized, talking to them about that experience um, and uh, why hospitalization sometimes happen and how what they can do to have some ownership over that experience if it does happen in the future. But I think the idea of psychoeducation um, prior to and then certainly after, um, you know, and I included this slide, assessments that need to take place or not need, I shouldn't say that, but assessments that may take place after a hospitalization. So um, updating an individual's crisis plan or a RAP plan, like what about the crisis plan worked? What didn't work? And it's not to say that because somebody was hospitalized that a plan didn't work. Uh, in some ways, going to the hospital might have been part of the crisis plan um, to prevent somebody from death by suicide or um, or, or some other uh, harmful unintended consequences. So maybe that is part of it. And we can say, yeah, you know, this worked as much as I don't want to go to the hospital, this saved my life in the moment. And it was an awful experience or maybe it wasn't so bad. But again, we're here I didn't die by suicide. I did not experience 
the full, uh, maybe the full psych, uh, psychotic break that I sometimes have in the past. So um, it, it may be part of something that, that does work, but just looking over those plans and talking with the client, are, are there things that need to be changed? Um, and then oftentimes a psychiatric evaluation after the hospitalization, maybe not a full evaluation. And if there are any psychiatrists on the line, I'd love to hear a little bit about your ideas or thoughts around this. But um, based on what the hospital did or recommended, um, does it represent a change in medications? Um, you know, in the clip, they talked about the intramuscular injections. Um, should those be considered? Um, is the individual willing to do that? I, you know, they certainly, there's a lot of data to support that I am, uh, that I am, um, do prevent rehospitalization, um, but also they can be perceived as, you know, this really takes away my power and control over me as an individual. Um, I'd like to be able to choose if I'm going to take medications or not. Um, as much as we as providers want to say, yes, please take medications daily or as prescribed, um, it can be perceived as taking away some choice and freedom. Um, so that's certainly something to, uh, to, to consider. So um, with the discharge, when possible, any outpatient treatment providers should be able to participate in that process. But again, if possible, it requires that you actually know your client has been hospitalized. Um, it requires collaboration with the hospitals. It probably requires relationship building with some of the local hospitals and the inpatient units or psychiatric units. Um, so they know who to call. They have sort of, they have a face to attach to a name and phone number. Um, for ACT teams, it was really, really important that at least one or two team members were part of that discharge meeting in the hospital. And oftentimes those team members were part of the plan for discharge in that they would provide the transportation from the hospital, maybe back to the shelter or wherever the individual was staying. Um, the psychiatrist or nurse practitioner often is really helpful to have part of that as well. So that way they're on the same page about what medications and what, uh, uh, what medical advice is, is being provided. So there's consistency. They're not getting mixed messages. Um, and then, you know, after that discharge, and I think this goes to the point uh, before that was mentioned about just providing an opportunity for that person to talk about their experience. So before we were talking about providing psychoeducation about what to expect during a hospitalization and how it might be really scary and what are some things that they can do to cope with that experience and how can they be reminded that they are actually in a safe place. But after it happens, kind of like that you could almost view it as a, a debriefing session, not quite, but a little bit more clinically focused but to be able to provide a listening ear to that individual about their thoughts and feelings about being hospitalized. Understanding that there may be some anger there, especially if you're the person who um, made the 5150 or, um, or if you were part of the process to get the individual hospitalized, that's, that, that's okay if they're angry, if they say things to you. I'm sure you were all used to it about having some service uh, participants say things to you that aren't the nicest. But, um, but again, there's a lot of emotion there. They may be responding to, again, a very traumatic experience. So being able to 
debrief with them, let them know that no matter what, you still are showing them compassion, you still care, and you want your team to be a place of support, um, even though this hospitalization um, took place. And maybe that could even be a motivation um, to uh, uh, for an individual to follow more of the recommendations or follow more of the treatment goals that they set up collaboratively if that, you know, if out of fear of hospitalization, not that fear tactics work. That's not what I'm trying to encourage. But, um, you know, I imagine there are people who have been hospitalized and are like, okay, I don't want that to ever happen again. What can I do to prevent it from occurring again in the future? So here is our website. If you have any uh, if you want to access any additional resources, um, there's also contact information there for us. So um, feel free to reach out and say, hey, we'd love more info on this or whatever, any other feedback you'd like to provide. But thank you all, particularly those who, uh, who participated. That's really, really helpful. So thank you for that. I hope you all have a really, really great afternoon and um, hope to see you on here again soon.